Yeah, and I think it's important that media not sort of create platforms for anybody to sort of step up and and really push their own view without, you know, making it clear where they're coming from. Welcome to episode 10 of the Canadian Couch Potato podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti, and it's great to have you back for another episode. If you've been a reader of my blog for a while, you probably know that I have a long association with Money Sense magazine. Way back around the turn of the millennium when I was a freelance magazine journalist, I got a call from an editor who asked if I wanted to do an article for a new personal finance magazine. I think it was about how to save money on music lessons for your kids or something like that. I took the assignment and for the next few years I wrote occasional articles for Money Sense about travel deals, online poker, collecting baseball cards, though I never wrote about investing until 2008. That was the year that my focus changed and I went on to contribute regularly to the magazine as a feature writer, columnist, and even a short stint as acting editor in 2012. Almost from day one, MoneySense became known for encouraging an investing strategy called the Couch Potato. They didn't invent that quirky name or the strategy, but the magazine was certainly at the forefront of bringing the idea of index investing to Canada. When it launched in 1999, remember, index funds were rare and ETFs were almost completely unknown to the public. Today that's all changed, and the magazine is one of the reasons why indexing has grown in popularity in this country. Of course, it's tough to make a living in print media these days. At the beginning of this year, MoneySense published its last print edition and made the transition to an all-digital format. The good news is you can still get a ton of great content at moneysense.ca, and the editorial team produces several email newsletters that you can subscribe to, all completely free. On this episode, I sit down with David Thomas, who was named Editor-in-Chief at MoneySense in late 2015. He's now Managing Editor for Business Coverage at McLean's and still oversees the MoneySense and Canadian business brands at Rogers Media. In our conversation, we chat about the magazine, as well as the evolving role of the financial media and the effect that it has on investors. Joining me in the studio for the podcast today is David Thomas, who uh, is a veteran financial journalist and uh, is currently, uh, his portfolio includes uh, oversight of the Money Sense and Canadian business brands uh, at Rogers. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. Great. So I wanted to begin by asking you to just share a little bit about your background as a financial journalist. You've been doing this job for a long time now. I've been doing, I've been in the business for about 20 years and change. Uh, I started out in Vancouver as a freelancer and sort of stumbled into business, had uh, other interests in mind, but uh, got the business bug when it came to uh, journalism in general. And um, I think what really fascinated me is uh, the, the stories that numbers can tell. And you can take that a lot of different ways. So I was doing freelance writing, a little bit of radio and a couple of TV things, but mostly uh, newspapers with the Financial Post. And I moved out as a junior reporter to the old tabloid Financial Post. Uh, we were rolled up into the uh, National Post at launch when it was uh, purchased by Conrad Black. And I moved on to editing and became an uh, uh, investing editor and then Financial Post uh, editor for the for their, all the business properties there. Uh, after that, Globe and Mail uh, was uh, deputy editor at the uh, Report on Business. And, uh, you know, I moved on from journalism for a little bit, came back to it, missed it. And uh, I've come in and sort of worked on a couple of different uh, magazine or 
former magazine brands mm -hmm. uh, at Rogers. So that's that's sort of my story in a nutshell. Yeah. Now we met uh, a couple of years ago when you came on board as editor in chief of Money Sense magazine. Uh, it's a magazine I've been affiliated with for a long time now. Been was a long time contributor to it. Um, as many of our readers uh, and listeners will know, um, Money Sense published its last print edition in January of this year. Um, but the brand is still there. The service is still there. So I want you to share a little bit about uh, what Money Sense is today and uh, where it might be going in the future. Yeah, well, I guess the first thing to address is that uh, that issue of print, and we were all sad to see it go. I think there's a lot of people who have worked in, in the craft, and it is a very painstaking, uh, it's a love affair with print. And, um, you know, it, it, it was tough to see it go, um, but it wasn't uh, cut because it wasn't making money. It was a profitable venture, and some of the other publications uh, under the Rogers umbrella also uh, disappeared in print. And the real focus is to grow in digital. Uh, you got to meet your audience where they're reading you most. And when it comes to investing, not just money, but the resources of the, the people involved, there's so much more to do in digital to reach a much larger audience uh, with video, with newsletters. There's a lot of different ways to get there. So um, yeah, it's sad to see print go, but really the mandate has never changed. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the brand is really about uh, empowering uh, investors and uh, uh, just average Canadians in all their financial decisions in terms of uh, how to how to make smarter decisions and how to save money. You mm -hmm. know. Now, one of the things that I think all media brands need to do is reach a younger audience, right? And I think I don't really know what the Money Sense magazine readership was in terms of its demographic, but if I can guess, it was probably your average reader was in their mid fifties or something, and they were maybe approaching retirement or thinking about retirement. Um, now, with the increased focus on digital, um, I'm thinking you're probably looking towards a younger audience, and I'm wondering what kind of feedback you're getting from people like what are Canadian investors most interested in these days what are what are the issues that are on their mind what trends are they following I think uh, a lot of the issues are issues that have never gone away um, it's a matter of reaching people maybe earlier uh, than they uh, than they used to be reached uh, and certainly uh, reaching them in the kinds of channels where they consume news. So whether it's YouTube, whether it's uh, just online generally, right? Um, we are, we've had a really good sort of uh, uh, pickup reception for some of the millennial focused um, stuff that we're writing. Uh, a lot of it um, um, really could be targeted to anyone from a teenager to someone in their 50s, really. The, the, the trick is to try to get them in and uh, sort of as a gateway brand and get them thinking about things and, and realizing and learning uh, what they could be doing to get smarter. Uh, but we also don't want to lose those readers when they be, do become a little more sophisticated. So we're really targeting the full the full range and taking people through the through the life cycle. Yeah. That's always the challenge eh, is to sort of write to readers who may be at a different stage, right? I mean, I've struggled with that too. At, at yeah. some point, you want to give very basic information because, you know, we all really want to help young beginning investors. But if you don't ever go beyond those basics, you lose a lot of sophisticated readers pretty quickly. And at the same time, or the opposite problem is if you start by assuming everybody knows all the basics and you can jump right into the advanced topics, people visiting your site or reading your uh, magazine or your articles for the first time are going to be alienated by that. 
I think I think that's a challenge that faces all journalism and any good writing. You, if you can speak to the smartest person in the room and teach that person something, but also somebody who's walking in cold and knows nothing about it, if you can not make it look like it's arcane and and complicated, and if you can really simplify it, that that's that's the basics of good journalism. Mm-hmm. No. I'm wondering if you can reflect on this a little bit as someone who's been kind of writing about business and maybe investing specifically for a long time. I know even I've been doing, you know, writing about the couch potato, for example, in mm-hmm. Money Sense for it's close to 10 years now. And even that period, I've seen a big evolution in how easy it is to invest now. I mean, 10 years ago, uh, first of all, I remember always thinking most people didn't even understand the concept of indexing. Uh, they were blissfully unaware of the high fees that they were paying. And if they wanted to get into index investing, it was pretty tricky to do because you, you know, you had to understand what ETFs were. No one was writing about them. I had to explain to people what that stood for. Now I find 10 years later, I mean, the fee awareness is much greater than it's ever been. Uh, And the tools are there uh, to make it much, much easier for people to invest than ever before. You want to talk a little bit about that? And have you seen a similar sort of trend or do you feel like maybe things are even more confusing now than they've ever been? Well, that that's, you know, maybe we should come to that afterwards because, mm-hmm. um, you know, with success does 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 come a, a, a lot of um, options that are sometimes uh, really more than you need. So you could say that the, uh, the, the landscape's become so competitive that uh, it can become bewildering in a in a different way but i think generally i mean the 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 real move in the in the 90s was mutual funds and at that point that was simplifying the process just come in sign up get your monthly contributions there's no uh, you know transaction fees it sounded easy it sounded sort of cheap um, and people just weren't quite getting uh, the devastating impact of uh, fees uh, on their nest egg over time um, because people are telling them, follow this superstar mutual fund manager and uh, boy, you can't do this yourself at home. I think uh, the whole DIY uh, movement was was very small for a reason and it was, um, you know, it was awareness uh, and, and also difficulty. Um, it is. Uh, it's easier to do today, and and I think the most important thing is 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 not just the ease. It's it's the size of the fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the argument was compelling a decade ago when you were starting that. Uh, the argument now, you know, if you were looking at wow, that's a that's an MER of less than one percent. That's so great. Now you're getting less than 0.1%. percent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty easy to drive that message home, and it's not surprising that it's really continuing to take off. I mean, it, it's a very positive trend in many ways because I think, you know, no one, no one's going to look after your money with more of a uh, more with more attention than you are yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it's certainly something that we've always struggled with, you know, in terms of um, in my creation of the blog or uh, you know my work as an advisor. It's you really want to support the DIY investor. But at the same time, part of that is knowing when DIY doesn't make sense, right? And there's, mm. I just think that's for a certain 
uh, number of people, certain percentage of people, um, it's not the right decision because as we all know, you know, sometimes the biggest enemy for the investor is themselves and their own behavior. Um, you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think overall, I'm just the, the, the trend towards people taking, um, or having more awareness of their personal financial situation has to be a positive one in the long run. Right. And I, yeah. I think even for somebody who ultimately maybe is ill-suited uh, to, to really be a 100% or, you know, uh, devoted DIY investor, still having those conversations about DIY, really you're talking about fees. It, it, it isn't, the, you know, unless you're just fanatical about being able to see your own numbers on your own screen. Uh, if, if the whole question is, how am I going to invest smarter and how am I going to, am I going to keep more of my money over time, uh, you're learning about fees. So if you still want to work, work with an advisor, it's still making you smarter when you go in and have that conversation with an advisor and say, hey, you know, look what I'm paying. Can I do better? Mm-hmm. And that's going to help you. So everybody should talk about DIY if they're talking about fees and learning. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because this is a kind of trend in media, I touched on it uh, a little bit in my previous podcast where I talked with uh, Tom Bradley of Steady Hand Investment Funds. Um, Todd is a kind of dyed-in-the-wool active manager. Um, and we were talking in our conversation about how we actually had a lot in common, even though you know I'm a hardcore passive guy, he's a hardcore active manager. Um, Money Sense has always really walked that line, right? I mean, for as long as I can remember, um, the couch potato, you know, was a money sense creation 10 years before I ever wrote about it. Um, and it really pioneered this idea of index investing in Canada. I mean, it, when the magazine was new, this idea was new. Um, but at the same time, it's not exclusively or ideologically a, a passive brand. Uh, and there are a number of stock pickers who write for the magazine, uh, for the um, online service now, the, the events that you do, you know, often include an active investing component. So you've always been able to walk that line. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe the kinds of feedback you've heard from audiences about, does it, does it seem like a mixed message or is it just a matter of recognizing that all investors are different and the same strategy isn't going to work for everyone? I think the way I've taken it and, you know, I've been reading Money Sense um, since uh, since it was launched. Uh, I've only been a part of it for the last couple of years. Um, I've always bought into and that was part of the ad campaign, I think, originally with Barclays um, who had the iShares brand before uh, BlackRock and that was the Corin Explorer. And uh, I think there has to be some openness. I don't think anyone has to be so orthodox. Uh, you know, if they believe in in a, in a couch potato, they don't have to be a hundred percent. If you want to uh, play a little bit outside of it, um, I, I think that I, I think it's healthy. So you know, you, you ask. What's our audience? Is there more than one audience? I, I think there are people who are only ever going to do uh, a, a couch. Um, potato uh, strategy. There are people who will do a, a bit of a mix. And, you know, increasingly, you know, what we want to do um, with the brand is is make sure we are reaching a broader audience and not just saying, hey, you got to do these one, two, three things uh, or you can't be part of the club. I think we have to acknowledge uh, because, you know, along with the bias towards do it yourself in a couch potato, there was also um, in, in some cases over the years, a bit of a, a negative bias to uh, mutual funds, to um, active uh, using a manager, using 
choosing an advisor. Um, and I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, fees have come down in that area and there are really good people and services out there. And um, we don't want to steer people away from those. Um, we want to drum home that message on low fee, but um, there, there's more than one way to play. And there are some big uh, mutual funds, there's big uh, active funds that have had good returns or low fee, and they really do take a lot of the uh, the workout if that's what you don't want to do. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, this is sort of a thing that I've come made my peace with that at the end of the day, you have to stick to a strategy that you personally believe in. Because if you don't, there will always be a period where your strategy makes you feel like a chump, right? Mm -hmm. There's no investment strategy that works all the time. Mm -hmm. Or when I say works all the time, I mean delivers high absolute returns all the time. So if you don't understand that the couch potato or don't appreciate that the couch potato strategy is going to result in losses during any period when markets go down, right? If you don't get that, and I don't mean get it intellectually, I mean get it in your gut, you're going to abandon it at the worst time. And so even though I may not personally believe that investors are better off with an active strategy, an investor is better off with an active strategy if an active strategy will make them stay disciplined right. during those bear markets. I think right. discipline is key. Uh, and that, that is the danger always when you're looking at your returns and over the past year it's down. So you get out of that and get into something else. You're going to end up killing yourself in terms of uh, returns on your portfolio. Uh, you should be thinking longer term. You should know your strategy and stick to it. And, uh, and over time, you know, a five-year period, you can probably tell if it's working for you or not. Right. I, th I think an interesting point to raise there too is um, – the whole evolution of the ETF landscape and and the blurring or you know this mix of active and passive they're not exclusive anymore by by any stretch so increasingly we're seeing all the the smart beta and uh, you know ETF options where you've got an active manager or an active algorithm that's uh, rotating through in a lot of portfolios and even using the words active and passive are a little bit confusing now. I think they yeah. require a whole bunch of footnotes. Yeah, those lines have definitely blurred. Um, certainly they blurred in terms of the products. I mean, there was a time uh, where if you said ETF, you meant passively managed index fund. Mm -hmm. That hasn't been true for a long time. Uh, and almost all new ETFs that are being launched have some sort of embedded active strategy because the passive products have already been created and they're out there and they're as cheap as they're going to be. Uh, and so anybody bringing a new product to market is not likely to make it a traditional plain vanilla cap-weighted indexed ETF. So there's a lot of stuff out there for people to navigate. And the choices are harder than ever, I think, because, you know, I was, used to laugh when, when we – when I started writing about the couch potato in money sense, iShares was the only game in town. That was the only ETF provider at the time. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to buy ETFs, they had like half a dozen to choose from and that was it. Now we've got, I don't know, what is it? Double digits of um, providers and hundreds of ETFs just trading in Canada plus mm -hmm. hundreds more in the US. The choices are overwhelming and sometimes it's very, very difficult to navigate you know, for, for investors and, and confusion is the result. Right? So we would encourage people to read the Canadian Couch uh, blog, but also, uh, you know, we do an annual sort of package looking at, because every year it's changing, there's a lot of competition on uh, MERs. So we've got our e ETF all-star package just mm -hmm. to help investors with that very thing. 
Yeah. Now I've been involved on that panel for the last few years. And I know some of the, the discussions are kind of interesting because, uh, and this is a struggle, you know, I think we can, I'll throw this out to you as just a general comment about the financial media is, you know, as writers, as people who are charged with creating new content for people on a regular basis, we're under a lot of pressure to come up with new and novel things to talk about. And one of the challenges with that, you know, as a as like the couch potato strategy, for example, it doesn't change very much. It's pretty straightforward. It's not about the newest ideas and trends to follow and here's what you need to buy now. It's basically the same message that we've been trying to deliver for years and years. And so as a journalist with that message, you know, the challenge is how do I make this compelling and interesting and not repetitive, but at the same time, I'm not just making it new because it's new, even if the advice is not very good. You know what I'm getting at? So like, you know, I, it must be hard for you to walk that line too, because the, the same advice is evergreen, right? You could almost write the same yeah. 30 articles over and over, but practically speaking, you can't do that. No, we don't want to just keep <laughs> writing the same story, but I, I totally recognize the challenge. It's something that um, – uh, that actually really continues to surprise me because sometimes you start confusing your own experience with that of, of the reader. And, you know, God, I feel like I've written this story 20 times, right? But people need to be told the same thing over and over. Um, one, they either just, it's not relevant to them when they read it the first time um, or situation changes or um, or they sort of get it, but it takes <laughs> Three times for the for the light to go on, and it really astounds me. I mean, to to the point of evergreen, we do a lot of stories on you know TSFA versus the RSP, right? And you think, boy, do I need to read that again? And um, every time we write it, it's one of the top reads. Mm -hmm. And you realize, I mean, the, the the worst thing you can do is is be dismissive of it. That's got to tell you something. I mean, we have analytics now, and, <laughs> and we can immediately tell what people are responding to. And you realize there's a lot of uh, confusion there. And you know, it, it took me a long time to realize, it, you know, it was the the savings. It was the S in the TSFA that confused mm -hmm. a lot of people. So they're sticking, you know, cash in their TSFAs and not investing. Oh, that's not for stocks. That's that's you know, that's not for ETFs. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, that seems like such a basic idea, right? That the, that the TFSA is an investment account. It's not a savings product. Um, and, you know, most listeners of this podcast are going to know that and say, yeah, of course. But we forget sometimes, as you say, you, you confuse your own experience with that of others. And uh, I think we all need a reminder, you know, as, as financial journalists that – um, sometimes those basic topics need to be revisited over and over. And, you know, if it means that some more experienced investors are going to be a little bored and they skip that article, I mean, so be it. Because you've got to lay that groundwork. Um, and if you try to, you know, only write about the more advanced topics, then you're speaking to a sort of small, rarefied group. And, uh, you know, the people who need the advice most are, you know, you've lost them. So... That's a challenge, I guess, for all of us as as journalists to to address. Yeah, no, and then certainly, um, I think, especially with investing. I mean, we cover all of personal finance, but uh, and we're now, um, you know, getting a different take on our audience as they read the newsletter that we launched. So in March, we launched Money Sense Invest, uh, and we've already, you know, we're hitting uh, ten thousand subscribers now. So it's a really 
good audience and uh, really high engagement. There, you know, more people are opening that than than other newsletters. We know there's a big appetite for it, and we always try to hit that mix. So we've got somebody who's doing, you know, um, millennial, um, really sort of basic. Hey, what's going on? How do I even open that account? And and doing a test drive for people to figure it out, but also hitting a a more sophisticated uh, audience with portfolio strategy and tax issues or whatever. And it. Um, it, it's tough to get the mix right, but yeah, we certainly want to try to reach everybody. Mm -hmm. I think there's room room for everybody under the roof. Yeah, and you raise an interesting point with that with the with the digital content with the delivery mechanism. Now, um, there's just fewer restraints on you know how much content you can generate. I mean, I'm an old magazine guy too, and one thing that we always worried about was word length, right? I mean, this is a great article, but I can't run your 3,500 word feature because I only have three pages in the magazine, whatever. So I need to cut this. One of the great advantages of the digital delivery <laughs> mechanism is you don't have to worry too much about that. You have a more or less infinite word length. I mean, obviously stories become unreadable at some point and you can't pack too much into a newsletter, but you can crank out a lot of material. And on one hand, that's great. But again, just like we're a bit overwhelmed with, you know, the number of ETFs and other products out there now, the financial media is huge now. And the amount of content that is available to investors is pretty staggering and pretty confusing. And I mean, maybe you can reflect a little bit on, you know, your time as, as a journalist, how you've seen that change. I mean, used to be investing in business news were written by, you know, hardcore professional full-time journalists. And now, you know, a lot of people writing the stories are in the industry. So how does the investor or the reader navigate that landscape now? One point just on, on what you're saying is, you know, now now there's no limit on how long you can write, but I think it's important to 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 remind people that it's actually now, you know, there's there's no problem with writing a really short story either, mm -hmm. and um, it, you it, you know, again, the format whether you're looking at a magazine or a newspaper, you know, you've got a spot for a brief, and if it's too long for a brief, it doesn't go anywhere because <laughs> you don't know where to put it on the page. Now, if you can do um, three paragraph stories, and explainers are a big part of that, you know, um, we find we do really well with that. So part of your role in the media. Is is using uh, your judgment to sort of this is what's important to you. Here's here's what you need to know, um, and I think that that's a big part of what what Money Sense does in in terms of providing answers. You don't need a big long read to explain a lot of news that ends up being written long. But to your point about um, just the the media landscape out there, yeah, there there's a lot more, uh, and I think in 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 a in a real sense, it's it's probably a, a, a stronger landscape. There is more information. You just have to go to a lot more sources if you really want to cover the, uh, the, the 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 whole gamut. In terms of the quality, you know, that's that's where I worry about it a little bit. Uh, certainly, as a consumer, there's a lot of people who have just sort of stepped up and started writing. There's a lot of people who are being paid uh, to write, and it's not clear what their affiliations are. Yeah, I think that's one of the issues that. Um you know, readers and investors face now is like, who who are we getting this information from? I mean, right? In, in some cases, you've got professionals who have a soapbox to talk their own book. In other cases, you've got amateurs who probably shouldn't be giving people personal finance or investing advice because they don't really have the knowledge or the credentials to do it. Mm -hmm. So you got sort of 
you know, a double-edged sword there and you've got readers and investors on the other end who have to really be careful saying, A, this person might know what they're talking about, but they have a vested interest. Or B, this person might just not have any idea what they're talking about and should probably be ignored. So. Yeah, and I think it's important that media not sort of create platforms for um, anybody to sort of step up and and really push their own view without you know, making it clear where they're coming from. And, um, you know, I think it's up to the media to, to work with people who are, who are strong and know their stuff and pick them like yourself. Uh, we're, we're always happy to have you writing Tom Bradley you had on. There are people, uh, certainly in the financial industry who sort of walk the talk and share, you know, they're aligned with what uh, money sense is about when it comes to investor education and then, you know, uh, fee structure and disclosure and transparency and all those key issues. Mm -hmm. Anything uh, on the horizon for MoneySense that you can share with us when where can readers learn more? Well, um, there, there will be more uh, launches in terms of uh, newsletters. We've been putting a lot of effort into um, video and, and other products. So, you know, as I say, the brand is really what it was before, but we are um, taking it into new places, really trying to broaden that readership, but also have the areas of uh, you know expertise that we've always been known for. So okay. great. Well, thanks for joining us, David. My pleasure. You can sign up to receive the free Money Sense Invest newsletter by visiting moneysense.ca and clicking on the subscribe button. If you're a DIY investor, you're going to want to check out the 2017 edition of Canada's Best Online Brokerages. MoneySense has been doing this review annually for five years now, and it's a thorough comparison of the best and worst features across all of the bank-owned and independent discount brokerages. So check it out online. And now it's time for another installment of... Bad Investment Advice. Where we help you avoid harmful myths and ideas that can sabotage your returns. In the last few weeks, I've received several questions from readers and listeners about whether Canadians really need international diversification in their portfolios. I think most people understand that the Canadian stock market is very small and that it's dominated by banks and energy companies, so we need to diversify beyond our own borders. But many seem to feel that we just need to add large U.S. companies to the portfolio, using an index fund tracking the S&P 500 or something similar. They seem to feel that because the U.S. has the largest and most diversified economy in the world, there's no need to hold international or emerging markets equities as well. The readers that I've heard from were mainly getting this message from blogs, but unfortunately this idea has some high-profile supporters as well. An article on CNBC that ran in April explains that it's been promoted by both Warren Buffett and John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard and the father of index investing. Now, these two gentlemen are hardly villains, so I'm a bit reluctant to jump on this, but I do think that avoiding international diversification is a mistake, and I will try to make that case. So here's an overview of the argument. U.S. multinational companies sell their products and services all over the world, so they give you plenty of exposure to the global economy. In fact, close to half of all the revenues earned by companies in the S&P 500 in recent years have come from international sources. So why invest directly in China, Korea, Brazil, or even the UK, France, and Italy when you can get exposure to those economies through companies such as Coca-Cola, Apple, or Google who peddle their wares in those countries? 
Now, a second argument that people will make for avoiding international diversification is that global markets are highly correlated. So, in other words, they tend to rise and fall together. Remember that the goal of diversification is to hold a collection of assets that don't all move in lockstep. You want some to go up when others go down. If Canadian, U.S., and international equities all move more or less in tandem, then there's little point in holding all of them. Some people will even go a step further and argue that adding international equities to your portfolio actually increases the risk, which again is exactly what you want to avoid when you diversify your portfolio. Now, this all sounds reasonable on the surface, but does it hold up to scrutiny? Well, it's certainly true that during a global crisis like the one we saw in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Holding international equities didn't help much because markets all over the world plummeted together. That's probably why this advice to avoid international equities saw a resurgence after that crisis. I think investors just felt that diversification let them down when they needed it most. But in a 2011 paper on the topic,、uh, Clifford Asnes and his colleagues put it this way. They said, "Quote: Those who dismiss diversification on the basis of this argument miss the bigger point." Investors whose planning horizon is measured in decades should not be over anxious about the risk of common short-term crashes. Instead, they should care more about the long, drawn-out bear markets, which can be significantly more damaging to their wealth.、Unquote. To examine this idea from a Canadian perspective, I did some analysis using index data going back to 1970. I compared the performance of two portfolios: one that held half Canadian and half U.S. stocks, and another portfolio split equally between Canada, the U.S., and international developed markets. So this includes Western Europe, Japan, and Australia primarily. Both portfolios were rebalanced annually. Here's what I found: during the last 47 years, equity returns were 9.2 percent for Canada. 9.9% for international and 10.8% for the U.S. when measured in Canadian dollars. So the average annual return, therefore, was right around 10%. The portfolio of half Canadian and half U.S. stocks returned more than that average, about 10.3%, and with significantly lower volatility than either of the two countries individually. So that's the free lunch of diversification at work. Combining these two asset classes produced a higher return and a lower risk. But it gets even better than that. Now remember, the average return for international equities was 9.9 percent, so less than the 10.3 percent that we got from combining Canadian and U.S. equities. Yet when we added one third. In international equities to our global portfolio, the return increased to 10.4 percent, and the volatility was even lower than that of the Canada-U.S. portfolio. So clearly, then adding international equities to the portfolio had a very significant diversification benefit, at least during the last 47 years. It certainly didn't over every period, not by a long shot, but over the course of an investing lifetime, I think you will agree that it makes sense. Now we don't have as much data for emerging markets, including China, Brazil, India, and so on, because many of these developed countries did not have investable stock markets until much more recently. But I did run the same experiment using data going back to 1988, and this time the global portfolio included one third in a mix of developing and emerging countries. Once again, the global portfolio outperformed, albeit slightly, 8.55% annually compared with 8.45% for the half Canada, half U.S. portfolio. But it did so again with lower volatility. 
All of which means it's fair to say that over long periods, building a portfolio with true international diversification, not just exposure to large U.S. companies, still makes sense. It may or may not increase your long-term returns, but it should make for a smoother ride and reduce risk. There's another reason to include international equities in your portfolio. Remember that the U.S. was the best-performing stock market of the last century or so, but the global economy evolves, and we don't know which countries will be the big winners in the next several decades. Certainly, many nations are seeing their economies grow much faster than the U.S., and one of them may well emerge as the next powerhouse. The U.S., meanwhile, could see a prolonged period of decline. We don't know, and we don't never know how the future will unfold, and so that's precisely why we diversify. Credit Suisse publishes an excellent yearbook that looks at global stock market data going back to 1900, and they offer some wise perspective here. Here's what they wrote in a recent edition. Quote, The New York Stock Exchange traces its origins back to 1792. At that time, the Dutch and UK stock markets were already nearly 200 and 100 years old, respectively. Thus, in just a little over 200 years, the USA has gone from zero to more than a one-half share of the world's equity markets. Extrapolating from such a successful market can lead to success bias. Investors can gain a misleading view of equity returns elsewhere, or of future equity returns for the USA itself. Close quote. Here's some more insight from that paper I mentioned earlier by Clifford Asnes. He writes, quote, even though market panics can be important drivers of short-term returns, country-specific economic performance dominates over the long term. Diversification protects investors against the adverse effects of holding concentrated positions in countries with poor long-term economic performance. So to sum all of this up, this idea that large U.S. companies are a substitute for holding international equities, like so many other investing myths, breaks down when you look at the data. Indeed, according to that CNBC article about Buffett and Bogle, even they, quote, don't cast this advice as stone-cold or research-driven. In fact, both say it's more of a preference and perhaps geared to investors who need to keep it simple rather than those who want to generate the absolute highest returns for the lowest risk, close quote. Hey, I'm all for simplicity, but building a globally diversified portfolio these days is extremely easy and extremely cheap. In fact, you can even get exposure to U.S., international, and emerging markets with a single ETF. iShares offers such a fund with the ticker symbol XAW, and Vanguard has a similar one with the ticker VXC. So, with humble apologies to Mr. Buffett and Mr. Bogle, encouraging investors to ignore half of the world's equity markets is just another example of bad investment advice. And now it's time for our Ask the Spud segment, where we reach into our listeners' mailbag and answer your burning questions. With me, as always, is my colleague, Amanda Diel. Okay, so today's question comes from Brent, who writes, My parents are retired and in their mid-70s. They use a financial advisor to manage their portfolio, and they withdraw a monthly income, which they've done for years now. Their portfolio currently consists of three mutual funds, with MERs between 2.11 and 2.42. I'm not comfortable paying those types of fees, but when it comes to my parents, it's a little more complicated. I want the best for them, but I don't know what that is. Does it make sense to continue to use their advisor and keep paying these high MERs? Or would converting to a couch potato portfolio with ETFs be better at this point? I've explained the high fees to my mom, 
and she says she will ask her advisor if ETFs would be more suited for them at this point in their lives. I just feel like the advisor isn't going to suggest anything that reduces his fees. So she's not going to get a straight answer. Do you have any advice? Thanks for sharing this great question, Brent. It's one that I hear from many people who have embraced index investing themselves and are now trying to help family members. No one should ever pay over 2% for investment management. And in this case, what's worse is that Brent provided the names of the specific funds in his parents' portfolio, and their performance has been dreadful, even compared to other active funds, let alone to index funds or ETFs. So the status quo clearly isn't working here. Let's consider the options for Brent's parents. First, they could fire their advisor and invest on their own. And Brent, you know, if you had asked me this question seven or eight years ago, I would have pounded my fist on the table and advised your parents to sack this guy immediately. And I would have suggested your parents set up accounts with an online brokerage and become DIY investors using ETFs, because that would indeed allow them to cut their costs by maybe 95%. I know many people have made similar suggestions to their own parents. But Having worked with hundreds of investors firsthand over the years, I understand now that that advice is much too simplistic. The fact is, not everyone is cut out for investing on their own, and in particular, if you're in your mid-70s and you've worked with an advisor for your whole life, this probably is not a realistic option. Now, it might be if Brent's parents were the ones initiating the change, if they were engaged with the idea, if they were enthusiastic about learning more about investing, but from what you've written, it doesn't sound like this is the case. And I think Brent recognizes that nudging them to open self-directed accounts and build their own ETF portfolios is probably just setting them up for failure. So this is definitely not the right option. A second possibility is for Brent's parents to ask their advisor to rebuild the portfolio with ETFs. In fact, it sounds like they already have. This probably isn't going to work either, though, but not for the reasons that you might expect. Brent anticipates that the advisor will be concerned about a reduction in his own fee, but there's more than that going on. The first thing to understand is most advisors in Canada are not licensed to sell ETFs. I don't want to get too deep into the technicalities, but most advisors you encounter at bank branches and investment dealers are only licensed to offer mutual funds to their clients. To offer individual stocks and ETFs, advisors need a different license from a different regulatory body. In this case, the advisor probably couldn't offer Brent's parents ETFs even if he wanted to. Second, Advisors who have spent their whole career selling mutual funds often have no idea how ETFs and index funds work. I mean, I've seen this in emails from advisors that were forwarded to me by clients. It's clear they don't even understand the theory behind indexing because they've been brought up in a culture based on the promise of active management and they make investment decisions based almost entirely on past performance. You may as well go to an oncologist, Brent, and tell her that you want to try energy crystals instead of chemotherapy. I just think this approach is likely to be futile. So, Brent, as I see it, you have two options, and the right one is going to depend on the relationship that your parents have with the advisor. If the advisor provides good service, you know, he returns their calls promptly, he meets with them regularly, he makes a genuine effort to understand their needs, they probably don't want to switch. So if that's the case, I suggest your parents tell their advisor that they're concerned about the high fees and the poor performance of the portfolio and ask him to present some options for lower cost mutual funds. 
These might be active funds. They might be index funds. It depends on what options are available to the advisor. But it's almost certainly possible to reduce the cost of the portfolio to, say, one and a quarter to one and a half percent, which sounds very high if you're a DIY investor, but is a huge improvement over what they're paying now. And it has the benefit of salvaging the relationship, which frankly is something your parents probably need. Now, the advisor might be more open to this than you think because investors really need to understand that while commission-based advisors are indeed paid from mutual fund fees, higher MER funds don't necessarily pay higher commissions to advisors. So an advisor may be able to choose mutual funds with lower MERs while still collecting a similar fee for himself. It's at least worth asking. Now, if the advisor pushes back hard, well, then it might be time to look elsewhere for help. And that brings us to the other option, which is just to find another advisor. Your parents, Brent, should look for a fee-based advisor who isn't compensated by selling products. But I acknowledge this can be difficult. Not only do fewer advisors use this model, especially outside of big cities, but those who do generally have high minimums. And if, Brent, if your parents don't meet that minimum, they may end up just interviewing a number of potential advisors who are peddling their own breed of high-cost mutual funds. But again, it's at least worth starting that search. There is a lesson here for others who are in a similar position to Brent, whether it's in relation to their parents or family members or friends. If you've discovered the benefits of indexing and the low costs associated with ETFs, you might be eager to share that with loved ones who are being poorly served by their financial advisors. I know your intentions are good and you generally want to help, but we need to be careful here. Uh, if you tell someone they're paying too much for advice or worse, you frame it like the advisor is ripping you off, they're naturally going to get their backs up. They're going to feel like you're calling them foolish or naive, even though that's clearly not your intention. So if you want to encourage others to consider index investing, go ahead, share the name of a book or a website or a podcast that you like, but don't push it too hard. If they're interested, they will come around on their own time. Thanks, Dan. Remember, if you've got an investing question, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com. And if it has broad appeal, Dan may answer it on a future podcast. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Couch Potato podcast. And don't forget, you can visit my blog, canadiancouchpotato.com, for links and show notes related to this episode and to read hundreds more articles designed to make you a better investor. A big thanks to the people who make it all possible, our producer, Nick Jaworski, as well as Tara Hunt and Nicole Pomeroy at Truly Social, and to my colleagues at PWL Capital. See you next time.